trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Happy once again to connect up with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Hello, Eric. Hey, Brian. How are things out there? You know, I'm, I'm feeling encouraged. As my comrades, Me too, actually. My comrades and I took the weekend off, and somehow I feel much more refreshed, but that's probably a product of being unplugged from the Matrix for a bit. Tell me what's going on in your world. Well, aside from me bobbing and weaving like Muhammad Ali in his prime to avoid the jab, uh, from what I gather from news reports around the country that most people who are listening to this probably haven't heard because the corporate-owned press is suppressing all of this news, there's apparently been a significant walkout of Air Force pilots uh, over the mandated jab that was decreed um, by the Secretary of Defense, uh, a coordinated mass re- resignation of these pilots who said, in effect, look, we're healthy, we get regular physicals, we're not going to subject ourselves to this, and if that's the price of continuing to serve, we're out of here. Wow. And that just made my morning when I read that piece. Well, I'm glad to see that there is resistance, although I, I saw some video over the weekend and I thought, okay, i got to bring this up to, to Eric. Maybe you saw this. French police chasing a woman down in a mall and beating her as they I take her into that. custody. Well, she must have been a pretty, pretty bad criminal. Mm-hmm. No, she just didn't have proof of vaccination. Yeah, but you know, as horrible as that is for the person who was assaulted, in a macro sense, I think that is a good thing for the cause, so to speak, in that it reveals how barbarous and out of control this whole regime has, has become. And it makes these people who are behind it and using the pit bulls of, of police to impose it look really bad. You know, what's been going on in New South Wales and Australia, for example, over a handful of so-called cases, i.e. people testing positive, uh, the, I forgot the guy's name, but the leader of that, that part of Australia is, is threatening to literally lock people out of life if they don't submit to all of this. And it's become so out of hand, so egregiously authoritarian, that more and more people are saying, this is, this is out of hand and it's got to stop. And I'm encouraged by it. You may have seen there was a mass walkout in a high school. I, I wish I, could have, I should have written this down before we got on the air. I can't remember which state it was in, but these high school kids on their own said no more masks and they walked out of the school as a group as an entire student body effectively and said we're not doing it anymore we're not wearing the masks anymore good for them yeah if, i i think the object lesson of watching the police uh, you know beat down this poor woman anybody who says well i support you know these vaccine passports yeah th- this is what you're supporting and and if you That's if exactly you think right. turn this over to american police do you believe they would hesitate to chase people down and beat them now, there was, there was another video that I saw, and it looked to be the same kind of police. They were dressed the same. Uh, this, I believe, also was in France. This one had a slightly different ending, and that was the police showed up to enforce the vaccine passport, mm-hmm. and the crowd of people at the mall backed them down. Yes, I saw that as well. And isn't it interesting that, again, we have this uh, juxtaposition uh, of Americans who for many years accused the French of being surrender monkeys and, and cowardly, uh, standing up to tyrannical authority. And that, I think, is an object lesson for Americans about how this ends. 
Uh, when you see something happening like that, when you see a, a person being brutalized for nothing more than not wearing a face mask, it's time to step up. I'm not suggesting they necessarily attack the cops by any means, but I am suggesting they stand up and say no, enough, and get more and more people to say enough. And the mere presence of more people than cops when they perform this is sufficient sometimes to get the cops to back down. And yeah. and also to appeal to the good nature of people. I don't, you know, I don't think most cops are psychopaths, and I think most cops probably want nothing to do with this business. I think most cops probably want to get back in the business of going after criminals as opposed to their fellow citizens uh, who aren't doing anything other than simply trying to live their lives and not bend knee to this outrageous tyranny. And by appealing to their better natures, I think we might get somewhere. Of course, there are a few bad apples within the system who are uh, eager, champing at the bit to be the enforcers of all of this. But I have to believe it's not most of them. I wanted to get your take, too. Uh, a week ago, Joe Rogan announced that he had tested positive mm -hmm. for COVID. And then, yep. to the dismay of uh, you know the, the controlling types, he got better. And people are yep. actually upset that he recovered from an yeah. illness. And I'm just wondering, what does that say about the mentality that, that holds yeah. sway over so many people these days? Sure. Well, there's a degree of sadism involved in this, as you and I have talked about before. And Rogan, in the first place, we don't really know what to believe because these, these tests are so notoriously inaccurate. He may not even have had COVID, but let's assume that he did. We have to take into context, context the fact that Rogan uh, is an ex-MMA fighter and the guy's in really good shape. So, you know, he, you know, he was in a position to recover quickly from this illness, as most healthy people are. And we should be glad of that. Everybody should be glad of that and cheer the fact that somebody recovered. And there's something really just, just animalistically sick about people who uh, are, are happy when they hear about somebody who has become ill and then literally will almost trample on the grave of somebody who dies. What does that say about the person who says such a thing? Wow. All I know is I can't control the people who think like that, but I can take great care that I don't become one of those types of people. Correct. And I think also to express, as we are expressing right now, um, our disdain and contempt for people who have that, that type of mentality, who take pleasure in the misfortune of other people. Yeah, well, this is this is fertile soil for those who are of a controlling nature, and I, I'm grateful for everybody who will push back. I appreciate you sending me the article too about the the mm -hmm. pilots, you know, walking off. Yeah, I I don't know, I don't know what it would take to get people to the point where they're willing to risk the discomfort of walking away from a job or of you know putting their foot down, burning their ships, so to speak, rather than uh, you know retreat and you know submit to what's being demanded. Well, I think I do know. I think I do know, and I think what it is is the dawning awareness that these jabs, it's not just the principle which is important, uh, it's the actual on-the-ground fact that these jabs are dangerous and they're hurting people, and it's becoming very difficult for uh, the corporate and government media to continue to suppress the fact that thousands of people are dying and suffering debilitating problems as a result of these jabs. And whatever your job is, no matter how well you're being paid, at the end of the day, it's not worth getting Bell's palsy. It's not worth being killed over it. It's not worth getting something that's going to maim you for the rest of your life, is it? No. And, and to me, there's also there's the importance of 
have some balance in the news that you consume. Um, you've probably heard, you know, the, uh, oh, look, people taking ivermectin have poisoned themselves mm-hmm. so much that these rural rubes are making people with gunshot wounds have to wait for care. That was an actual story that was picked up. In and, the Rolling and, Stone. And by, mm-hmm. But it was fake. The, the hospital Completely. that was in question. And they didn't even fact check it. Oh. You know, you and I as journalists are probably equally appalled about this. Uh, I've been at this a long time, about 30 years now since I got out of college. And there used to be fact checkers. And a story was not published until it was vetted. You know, if you made an assertion in a story about something like that, in this case, that people were, uh, you know, being admitted, admitted en masse to a hospital, you would check it out. You would confirm that that doctor who made these allegations actually worked there before the story ran, right? And instead, they just run the story because it fits the agenda. It turns out that doctor hadn't worked there in months and so had absolutely no basis for making the allegations that were contained in that story. And the entire story was pure tripe. And I hope Rolling Stone gets bankrupted by the lawsuits that well, I hope inevitably follow from this. Well, we saw it with the Covington High School kids, right, at the yep. the you know Lincoln Memorial. And, oh, look, they were racist little Trump supporters. And it turns mm-hmm. out that wasn't the case at all. So, yeah, yeah, well, that was just outright dishonest reporting. They deliberately suppressed facts about that particular circumstance. In this case, we have that element. And in addition to that, we simply have incompetence and laziness. Uh, the, the, the least... I, what, what, would, what would they have had to do? A copy editor or an editor up the chain at Rolling Stone could have picked up the phone and made a call to that hospital and said, hey, uh, does Dr. So-and-so work there? I mean, it literally would have taken 90 seconds to make a call like that. And he chose not to make the call. And yet, I don't think we're going to see much in the way of shame on the part of those who took this and ran with it. You know, Rolling Stone has had to issue a retraction, but none of the other article, or none of the other outlets that carried it, to my knowledge have actually, you know, recanted or No, and that's part of the problem with journalism today. You know, it has lost almost all credibility because people know it, it, it's just a can't. It's a propaganda arm, and this goes for both the left and the right. There's nothing honest any longer. There's no respect for facts. Uh, once upon a time, if a journalist was caught uh, making an obviously false and worse than that, a deliberately false statement in an article, that person was ruined and never worked in the business again. I I can't think of the guy's name. There was a guy back in the 90s when I worked at the Washington Times. He was a famous guy, and I think he did an article for the New York Times, and it turned out to be plagiarized and false, and that was it for him. He was out of the business, and that used to be the discipline that kept journalists in check. Now it just doesn't matter, and and, and because it doesn't matter, most people assume that what they read is, is cognitively dissonant garbage. Which it is. Hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And we'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Um, Eric and I talk a lot about freedom issues, but uh, I first became acquainted with him as an automotive and uh, motorcycling rider. And Eric, uh, I I have to tell you this just because I'm looking around at the the market for uh, new and used cars, and it's a little bit stunning. My wife and I are getting contacted by a dealership in Utah um, to buy your vehicle? Almost <laughs> hourly by them. Say, hey, yep. really, we'd like you to come down and we can get you into something with, you know, comparable payments. And they want to yep. buy our used car and 
They're yep. desperate. What is going on? Why Why this well, shortage? they're desperate because they've got almost no inventory. And uh, wherever you go across the country, if you're a car shopper, you'll find that there's almost nothing on the floor any longer. And it's due to this chip shortage, which I'm sure people who are listening to us talk are familiar with. And the problem, the reason for the, the, the problem there is that cars now are suffused with chips where once you had a couple of chips tied into a computer that ran the engine management system, that ran the engine, that ran the fuel injection, uh, ran the ignition system, and maybe uh, some of the transmission uh, functions. But uh, now it runs everything. You've got chips that run your power windows, your door locks, uh, the LCD touchscreen in the car. The whole thing is like a Borg from Star Trek uh, collective. And all of these systems are spiderwebbed together and without these chips, nothing works. And since the chips aren't available, a lot of these chips come from China, by the way, I'm using the orange man inflection, <laughs> the manufacturers can no longer build the cars. The cars have become kind of like a cell phone, except it's a, uh, a, a, an extrapolated cell phone with multiple, multiple pieces of equipment in it that are similar to the cell phone, any one of which makes it impossible for the thing to work. So hence the, the shortage. And it's crazy because it doesn't add anything to the car from the standpoint of the buyer. Like I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, do you think it's any, any easier or better to uh, raise or increase the fan speed or adjust the climate or adjust the temperature of the air conditioning or the heat by tapping on a screen as opposed to turning a knob? No, I'm, I'm old school. I like the mechanical you know, feel of click, click. Okay, now I know it's working. Sure. And how about power windows? Do you think the power window goes up and down any more, any better uh, if it's controlled by what they call a body control module rather than a switch and a wire? No. Right. But yet these cars now all have this stuff embedded in them without which none of these systems can operate. And it doesn't serve any purpose other than to make the car much more complicated, much more difficult to build, and at the end of the day, more expensive and more likely to be disposable sooner than the cars of the past, which in my article, I, I talk about having reached a kind of apotheosis of excellence uh, in the early 2000s, uh, which now is almost 20 years in the rearview mirror when we had cars that were incredibly reliable, that were virtually maintenance-free, uh, that would run for 175, 250,000 miles without major problems. And that left a dilemma to be dealt with. The car companies were like, well, what are we going to do now? We've pretty much got these engines all sorted out. The transmissions are all sorted out. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we've got all this electronic technology. Let's start grafting it into cars, and we can put touchscreens in cars, and we can put uh, beepers and buzzers and do this, and we can make things that used to operate mechanically operate them electrically and dazzle the people with all of this stuff, which is exactly what they did. And now we've got this ridiculous problem of the cars of today being in many ways inferior to the cars that were made 20 years ago. Astonishing. So where do you see this leading it, though? Um, I mean, I don't have a sense that our economy has ground to a halt, but I don't see this something that can be fixed quickly and painlessly. Well, yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, you know, you keep increasing the complexity of a system, and beyond a certain point, it just collapses, right? And then you have to shamble through the pieces and figure out how you're going to put it all back together. And I think that is ultimately where this is going to end up heading, because the current, the current system and the way everything is, is, is done, I don't think is sustainable in the long term. Well, you and I have talked before about the importance of if you want to maintain your uh, mobility, your ability to, to drive, you know, without problems, um, 
you've got to be willing to consider getting an older model car, truck, mm-hmm. something that you can actually work on yourself. That or just hang on to the car that you have right now. I have an O2 Nissan Frontier myself, and it is one of those apotheosis cars, if you like. It's got electronic fuel injection, uh, and it has 140-something thousand miles on it, and the thing runs like a brand-new truck. I almost never have to do anything to the thing except change the oil, uh, put new brake pads on it every once in a while, and that's it. It doesn't have a touchscreen. It doesn't have eight airbags. Uh, it doesn't have advanced driver assistance technology, but every single time I get in it, it starts up and it goes, and I love that truck, and I will cling to it until it is pried from my dead, cold hands, and I recommend <laughs> other people do exactly the same. No, here, here. Well, uh, it's it's going to be curious. There, I know there are some interesting uh, geopolitical shifts, and uh, where China is a major manufacturer of the chips in question. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm just curious if we will see you know some political pressure applied via this chip shortage. I wonder, and you know, there's something that is peripheral and related to this with regard to what what's going on in Afghanistan. As I understand it, Afghanistan is one of the few places in the earth on the earth where the rare earth materials that are essential to the production of electric cars are obtainable. And we have just tucked tail and gotten out of Afghanistan, and guess who's coming in? The Chinese. Mm. So, you know, and meanwhile, our government, well, I, I don't like using our, I'll say the government, is continuing to try to force these electric cars down our throats, these electric cars that are completely dependent on these rare earth materials, that are out of the control of us and under the control of people like the Chinese communist government. Isn't that something? Wow. Now, uh, along the automotive, uh, along the automotive lines, um, I noticed that you had recently written about the 2021 Ford Bronco Sport. And yes. I just I only ask this because as I was driving through Montpelier, Idaho over the weekend, I saw mm-hmm. a, a Ford Bronco and this was one of the big mm-hmm. full-size new ones, you know, for sale at mm-hmm. a dealership. And I thought that's kind of a sexy looking vehicle. What mm-hmm. can you, what can you tell me about uh, your thoughts on either the Bronco itself or the the Bronco Sport? Well, it's a little bit confusing. You'd think that they're essentially the same vehicle uh with one having say a sport package, but that's not the case. The regular Bronco is a real-deal four-wheel drive uh, that is designed to emulate the classic Bronco that you, can, you and I can remember from back in the day when we were in high school that's designed to go rock-crawling and mud-bogging and rooster-tailing through fields and all of that. <laughs> the Sport, on the other hand, is essentially a heavier-duty version of the Escape, which is just another crossover SUV that looks like all the other crossover SUVs on the market. However... Uh, this one isn't just a gussied-up appearance package. They've given it some additional off-road capability, uh, and they've made it look pretty neat, too. So it's a, a crossover with some actual personality as well as some capability. It's roughly analogous to, if you're familiar with it, the Subaru Outback, in that you know, you've got a vehicle here that kind of can do a lot of the stuff that you would ordinarily expect a truck or an SUV to be capable of doing. But it's still, you know, it feels more like a car when you drive it to work every day which for a lot of people is important. You know, specialty vehicles, whether it's a a 4x4 SUV or a high-performance sports car, they're a lot of fun when you're using them for that purpose that they were designed for. But by the nature of the vehicle, they're also compromised for all-around use, and they're really not ideal for carting your kids around and for taking long trips. The the sport version of the Bronco is one of those dual-duty vehicles. It does both things pretty well, and so that's the appeal of it. 
Okay. I'm going to refer our listeners to your website, ericpetersautos.com. Um, you'll find a lot of reviews of other great cars and, and uh, a lot of great thoughts on, on political comments and, and uh, current events. And, Eric, you have one of the uh, most well-educated, well-rounded uh, readerships of, of anybody I know of. The comments are worth it as well. I think so, too. And speaking of that, I'd like to encourage anybody who's listening to the show who'd like to join that conversation to please do so. Uh, we have a very not only educated and uh, intelligent and interesting community of people, it's just a lot of fun. It's not one of those low-rent comment areas that you'll find in other sites where people use pejoratives and ad hominems and just insult each other with, with, with snarky little one-liners. You'll actually find thoughtful discussion going on there, whether you agree with it or not. Uh, and you can present your point of view and hear the point of view of other people. Hear, hear. Eric, great as always to catch up with you. Till next time. Sounds great. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Or if you wish, go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and you'll find an email address that will connect you directly to Heather. At the Patriot Home, Heather Turner at the... At the uh, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, it's right there in the show notes and uh, very much worth your time. So, let's talk a little bit about the strange uh, story that cropped up over the weekend. I I know that I spent a lot of time harping on, you know, the heritage media, the corporate media. But there's a part of me that wonders, how long will people go on believing what they're being told? And And I understand. Chances are very good. You're one of those people who questions. Ah, I don't know. I don't believe everything I hear. And hopefully, even when you hear it from my smooth, seductive voice, you're not going to believe it either. I don't want you to take things that I say at face value. I'd rather that you suss it out. And if you find that there's something wrong, if there's something that I have misrepresented or that I'm incomplete in, in what I'm sharing with you, I want you to call me on it. You can always leave a message with the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you really want to get fancy, you could actually click and leave me a voice message. That's an option, too. But isn't it interesting that there are still people who just hang on every, you know, every single report? Because uh, the the way that uh, our media right now is reporting on all things COVID, all things vaccination-related, and, and in this case, all things alternative-wise, it's really suspect. I'm still trying to figure out why they, they were so bent out of shape and trying to spin and control the narrative because Joe Rogan apparently uh, contracted and, and tested positive just a little over a week ago for COVID. And he did some extraordinary things. I don't remember everything he used. I think he used azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine. He used ivermectin. And he may have done the monoclonal uh, antibody treatment that Donald Trump did back when he had COVID last year. But he's better. 
I mean, in, in like three days, Joe Rogan beat COVID. And, and as odd as this sounds, people are furious about it. how dare he do that? How dare he survive this? And I don't know what drives that kind of anger, or that kind of thinking, but it's happening. It's the most bizarre thing I think I've ever seen. But here's the really crazy part. A lot of media outlets were taken by a very bizarre story that came out, I believe it was in Oklahoma, where there was uh, there was uh, some kind of a story that came forward. Uh, just These are a couple of the headlines from the news outlets. Gunshot victims left waiting as horse dewormer overdoses overwhelm Oklahoma hospitals, doctor says. Rolling Stone, I believe, were the ones who originated this story. And then, of course, others... Just like the Covington kids, remember, and uh, Nicholas Sandman, they were attacking this Native American activist. It's the same jump on the bandwagon. Oh, look, here's Fox 59. Gunshot victims left to wait as Oklahoma hospitals overwhelmed with horse dewormer overdoses. Similarities. I mean, they, they got the memo. Overdoses from anti-parasite drug ivermectin overwhelm rural Oklahoma hospitals, leaving gunshot victims waiting for emergency rooms. That's the Daily Mail. Here's the Independent. Doctor says gunshot victims forced to wait for treatment as Oklahoma hospitals fill up with people overdosing from ivermectin. So I guess we can pretty much figure out ivermectin is sometimes used as a horse dewormer. And these stupid rubes in the rural areas, these unsophisticated people who lack, you know, our erudite sensibilities, are so dumb they've been poisoning themselves with ivermectin because they didn't just get the vaccine. They had to go some alternative route, which everybody knows is the stupidest thing they could have done. Okay, let me switch the sarcasm off here for a second. The problem is this story is fake, top to bottom fake. The hospital in Oklahoma that was said to be at the epicenter of all those many gunshot victims, yeah, there's some questions about that too, left waiting for emergency care. Now that hospital is explicitly denying that it's overwhelmed by horse ivermectin overdose cases. And the lone doctor who's making the claim, well, what a surprise. He's not even an employee of the hospital at all. He's a contractor. He hasn't worked at the hospital for months. In fact, he hasn't treated any horse ivermectin cases at all. So why would they jump on this hysterical narrative being spread around multiple news outlets before anybody bothered to check the facts. It's shoddy reporting from a claim of one source with zero firsthand knowledge, but a whole host of news outlets picked up the fake story and they spread it around. And here's what I'm asking you to consider. Why? Were they just trying to scare people or shame people? Don't be like those stupid rubes in rural Oklahoma poisoning themselves on horse anti-wormer paste. Oh, come on. There's an excellent article from uh, Monica Showalter. Fake news. The campaign against ivermectin escalates. This is published at the AmericanThinker.com. Sorry, AmericanThinker.com. Might as well give you the correct address here. I do have a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. Now, Monica Showalter says, look, obviously a hospital would have an interest in seeing patients coming in for treatment. And a report like that would probably have kept a lot of them away. But she says at the same time, a detailed denial like that is pretty firm. 
and the hospital would be in trouble if it weren't true. And the hospital in question says they've treated no one for taking horse dewormer. No one at all. So the news outlets have made huge errors in judgment. They've trashed their own credibility based on the now-denied report that they could have got the answer to. And it was one of them, after another, running themselves off the cliff, none of them them really checking, all of them taking the word of one doctor who could have had any agenda. And she says, I suspect CNN may have run a version on the story based on multiple claims on Twitter and the fact that a Google search with CNN Oklahoma and hospital keywords turns up with CNN's name in news pickups from others such as Yahoo. But all clicks to the story come up empty. And if that's the case, it's got to be bad. She says it follows from another claim that multiple news agencies manipulated a photo of famous podcaster Joe Rogan who had COVID and took a people version of ivermectin prescribed off-label by a doctor and was cured quickly of his illness. Now, the news photos show a picture of his face with a yellow filter and slight blurring. Slight blurring in a bid to make him look green and sick. Not exactly Shrek-like, but yeah, he looks pretty unhealthy in the photo. The original photo showed him looking perfectly healthy. Why would they do that? Monica Showalter says, look, there's got to be some kind of a campaign ramping up against ivermectin, a a drug whose inventor won the Nobel Prize in 2015 for the first version of it, and which has been endorsed by the Japan Medical Association, as well as many studies which have found it to be an effective early treatment for COVID. There's no President Trump involved, so... It's something very funny going on. She says, could it be the work of Big Pharma, which has far more expensive medications for COVID to sell? It's terrible if true, given there's a lot of evidence out there that ivermectin does indeed cure the illness. But that's no issue to the press, it seems. And other than Rolling Stone, none have published the denial. So what's going on here? Why this ramped up campaign of lies and manipulations? Now, I share this with you not to get your ire up, so if you're hearing your pulse starting to, you know, thunder in your ears, hold on there. This ain't about getting angry. This is about pointing out the lengths that some people will go to in order to deceive you or to keep you on narrative. Just recognizing that that's taking place, wouldn't that change how you approach the news and information that you use to shape your view of, of understanding what's going on in the world. I mean, I know this, this is risking biting the hand that feeds me, but I think it's a really good idea to turn off the news, to unplug often. My friend, Kurt Mercadante has some really good advice. He says, Hey, here's my daily reminder for you. Watching the news makes you stupid. And that's not an insult. I think that's actually a really smart observation because the majority of those news headlines are designed to put you in a state of fear, to make you feel panicky, to make you feel like, oh, it's all out of control, or worse, to get you fixated on somebody or something that can be the scapegoat, a target for your anger. I guess my bottom line is a lot of the stuff that we're really upset about 
is often stuff that doesn't matter or it's stuff that's being distorted as it's being told to us. Unplug. Think critically. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know that uh, LifesavingFood.com is one of my sponsors here on the program. I just want you to know that uh, there is real peace of mind that comes from having your own food storage program. And if you're one of those people who's put it off, I know it may seem like, oh, it's overwhelming and prices are going up. I mean, we're all feeling the pinch of inflation. But right now, there is still plentiful supply available. Okay, nobody's in a panic at this moment. The, the stocks are good. The prices are actually quite reasonable. And there's a 25-year shelf life. Meats, vegetables, fruits, milk, and eggs. This is great long-term food storage. Stackable buckets with an easy grab-and-go handle. They even have survival kits if you're looking for just something you can grab and go with in the case of an emergency. Sure would make sense to have some of that peace of mind set aside for a time when you need it. You can always check out the link, which I supply in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Scope it out for yourself. If you find something that you can use, buy with confidence. And when you make that purchase, when you get to checkout, put in my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code. You'll save 10% on your, on your purchase price. Pretty good deal. So, because of the blatant gaslighting and mental conditioning that drives so much of our mass media, you're going to hear me urging you regularly, uh, <clears throat> unplug every so often to break the trance. Now, we just came back from a long weekend. And and I'm happy to tell you that uh, the majority of my weekend was spent in a locale that had uh, very limited Internet access. And I've really started to cherish this kind of stuff. Number one, I love being with family. So, it's you know, I'd like, I like to, to get my mind around being around my family. But it's it's so important when you recognize that you have a fear porn addiction, if you're working to break it, you've, you've got to be willing to, to see propaganda for what it is. There was an excellent article over the weekend from LouRockwell.com. It's actually from Edward Curtin, published on LouRockwell.com. And it's titled The Incantational Bewitchment of Propaganda. I just want to share a couple of excerpts from this because I thought this was a particularly uh, well-done treatment of why we have to be careful. And it starts with a quote from William Casey. You remember him, the CIA director? Back in February of 1981, he said, We'll know our disinformation is complete when everything the American public believes is false. Now, Edward Curtin says, All propaganda succeeds because it satisfies needs that it has first created. He says, if you follow the daily rat-a-tat mainstream news reports and react to them, you will be caught in a labyrinth that has been set to entrap you. Here's what he means. You'll keep finding that your mind will be like a bed that's already made up and your daylight hours will be filled with nightmares. What you assume are your real needs will be met, but you will swiftly tumble into the free-floating anxiety that the media has created 
to keep you on edge and confused. They will provide you with objects. COVID-19, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Russian and Chinese threats. They need to crack down on domestic dissidents. 9-11, etc. An endless panoply of lies that you can attach your anxiety to. But they will be no help. And they're not meant to because their purpose is to befuddle. It's to make you more anxious by wondering if currently there's any contrast between the real world and all the, and the apparent one. The corporate mainstream media serve phantasmagoria on a 24-7 basis, all shifting like quicksand. For anyone with a modicum of common sense, this should be obvious. But then again, as Thoreau put it, the commonest sense is the sense of men asleep, which they express by snoring. Now, perhaps some health expert will soon recommend that 24 hours of sleep a day is optimal. But Ed Curtin says, maybe I'm dreaming or being redundant. See, for many decades, the corporate mainstream media and the CIA have been synonymous. They were married in hell, now daily do the devil's work up above. Now that news is conveyed primarily through digital media via the Internet, their power to induce electronic trances has increased exponentially. Linguistic and visual mind control is their reason for existence. Fear is their favorite tactic. And since the fear and anxiety of death is the archetypal source of all anxiety, death becomes a core element in their fear-mongering. In a recent powerful article, Canadian independent journalist Eva Bartlett, a brave and free war correspondent who's reported from inside Syria and Gaza, has shown how the ongoing COVID-19 fear porn spewed out by the media has dramatically increased people's anxiety levels and thrown so many into a perpetual state of near panic. And this, of course, is not an accident. Fear immobilizes people. It drives them into a cataleptic state where clear thinking is impossible. They become hypnotized in a private space that is actually social. An instantaneous identification with the news media reports that are addressed to millions, but feel personal and greatly exacerbate the great loneliness that lies at the core of a high-tech society. Edward Curtin says, as I have said before, the new digital order is the world of teleconferencing and online life. Existence shorn of physical space and time and people. A world where shaking hands is a dissident act. A haunted world of masked masked specters, distorted words and images that can appear and disappear in a nanosecond. A magic show. A place where, in the words of Charles Manson, you can get the fear. Where fear is king. A locus where, as long as you stare at the screens, you are no longer there, since you are spellbound. He says, in a high-tech society, loneliness is far more prevalent than in the past. The technology has imprisoned people behind their screens, and now the controlling forces are intent on closing this mechanistic circle if they can. They call it the Great Reset. And they've spent decades using technology to invade and pare down people's inner private space where the freedom to think and decide resides. They've repeated ad nauseum the materialistic mantra that freedom is an illusion and that we're amazing machines determined by our genes and social forces. They've reiterated that the spiritual and transcendent realms, ah, they're nothing but illusions. And they've pushed their transhuman agenda 
to assert more and more power and control. This is the essence of the corona crisis and the push to vaccinate everyone. Drip by drip, year by year, they have cultivated the necessary preconditions and predispositions for this technological fascism with its nihilistic underpinnings to succeed. And he says, when the inner dimension of existence is lost, there is no way to critique the outer world, its politics and social structure. Dissent becomes a useless passion when people instantly identify with the social. Human nature doesn't change, but social structures and technology do, and they can be used to try to destroy people's humanity. Now think about this. Something Edward Curtin points out is he says, once upon a time, people sat together and talked. Do you remember those days? They even touched and shared their thoughts and feelings. They conspired in the most natural way, apart from the prying eyes and ears of electronic spies. What do people do today? Well, he says, now so many sit and check their cell phones. They connect, thinking they are with it, while not knowing they've been lured into another dimension where frenetic passivity reigns and trance states are the rule. Propaganda is the true remedy for loneliness, says Jacques Ellul in his masterpiece Propaganda. Now, he was being simultaneously accurate and facetious. For propaganda provides a doorway to pseudo-community, a place to lose oneself in the group, to satisfy that need to believe and obey in a mass technological society where emotional emptiness and lack of meaning are widespread and the need to fill up the empty self is dutifully met by propaganda which is a drug by any other name. Indeed, it's the primary drug. But the fundamental things still apply as time goes by, says Edward Curtin. Love, glory, loneliness, beauty, faith, fear, courage. Lovers and true artists, fighters both, resist this machine tyranny and its endless lies because they smell a rat intent on destroying their passionate love of the daring adventure that's life. They feel life is an agon, an arena for struggle, a fight for love and glory, a case of of do and die. And he says they have BS detectors. (laughs) And they can see through the elite's propaganda that's used to literally kill millions around the world and to kill the spirit of rebellion and so many others. And they know it's in the inner sanctuary of every individual soul where resistance to evil is born and where fear is defeated. They also know art and love must be shared. That's how social solidarity movements are created. So, yeah, the fight is on, and you're part of it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or a first-time kind of freedom-curious individual... You have found the right place. Why? Well, because the battle for your mind is real. 
And I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to encourage you in every possible way to think more clearly, more independently, and perhaps a bit more deeply on the subject of whatever it is that's going on around us. So I invite you to come find courage and camaraderie and claim your birthright as a free individual. Got some exciting stuff to share with you today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and also MonticelloCollege.org. And it's, it's interesting that uh, I'm, I'm going to start with, uh, with a piece here. In fact, I, I may spend the better part of this hour sharing a piece from the, the co-founder and president of Monticello College. That would be Dr. Shannon Brooks. Now, he's also the author of a, of a book called American, The Killing of the American Dream. And, and I, I understand that sounds kind of dire. Holy cow, are things that bad? Well, when you, when you take the long historical view, when you get some, some serious perspective on what is happening, it does paint a picture that is, uh, shall we say, less than favorable for what's been going on and, and <coughs> excuse me, where we seem to be headed. But I, I want to share this with you because uh, for, for a couple of different things. Number one, I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know here, but uh, economically, Look at the amount of spending that has been taking place. Look at the amount of borrowing that has been done to facilitate that kind of government spending. And we're talking, you know, consumer spending as well. There's, there's a lot of people who are deep, deep in debt. And at the risk of sounding alarmist, it just it isn't going to continue. It can't. It's, it's not a sustainable approach. So we are likely to see the, the dollar um, either deliberately or maybe just as a consequence of all the, the bad monetary policies and bad spending and taxation policies. The dollar appears to be in some pretty serious trouble. Now, again, this, this is not about scaring you. This is not about making you panic. Oh, run to the bank and demand every penny that you have in the bank. No, it's, it's more of a warning, but also some very serious historical perspective and particularly in light of uh, of fourth turning uh, historical cycles, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that uh, I I don't see history as just this linear timeline where we have a few hash marks here and there. Well, something interesting happened. This person was born, and this person did something. But you know, it's just a it's just a line going off, you know, towards an indeterminate future. No, there are cycles that take place. And this article by Shannon Brooks is excellent because it not only talks about what is happening right now in terms of um, the dollar, in terms of how did we get to the point where the dollar was the dominant, the world reserve currency and so forth. But we're going to talk about how this fourth turning methodology or this fourth turning model. It makes sense that, that we're facing some of the problems that we are right now. And it's it's a very lengthy article. I'm not going to have time to share all of it. Even if I spend the whole hour on it, I won't have time to share the whole thing. However, you will find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. It'd be really worth your time to read this. Not just read it, but to understand it as well. Because it's not there for the purpose of frightening you. This is for the purpose of helping you understand what has happened, how we got here, 
also what is likely to happen, and then to, to prepare yourself to, to exercise some of the options that are still at your disposal. So let's start with this article. It's called The Shrinking Hegemon, A Fourth-Turning Reality. And it starts in 1944 with the Allied, soon-to-be Victor Nations, meeting in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, for the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. <clears throat> now, at that time, keeping in mind, you know, 1944, <clears throat> the world economy was very shaky. And these allies got together to discuss the prevailing issues that plagued currency exchange. The Bretton Woods Agreement, which resulted from this meeting, set the stage for all global economic systems for the next 75 years. And this new global economy was based on the gold standard and the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. All other currencies were then based on the dollar. Now, world reserve currency is the currency that's chosen to provide stability for global economies. And here... Shannon Brooks includes a few excerpts from an article written by Kathy Jones from the Charles Schwab Financial Group back on March 19th of this year. Quote, We are often asked if the U.S. dollar will lose its status as the world's reserve currency. She says investors are worried or concerned, rather, that the Federal Reserve's easy monetary policy, combined with rising budget deficits, will undermine confidence in the dollar. Now, the recent drop in the dollar over the past year has heightened these concerns. And while we agree that there can be unforeseen consequences from the current policy mix, we believe the dollar's role as the dominant global currency looks secure. Interesting, isn't it? She seems to feel like, no, this is good. This is We're good. So here Shannon goes into a, a description of what are reserve currencies. Now, the reserve currencies are typically issued by large developed countries with records of financial stability to be held in reserve by a foreign central bank. That means a currency typically needs to be freely convertible, in other words, not pegged by the government, have a large and liquid debt market that foreign investors can access, have an independent central bank, and be widely used in trade and global transactions. So in addition to the U.S. dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen, the British pound, the Swiss franc, Australian dollar, and Chinese uh, renminbi uh, are all held in reserve. However, the dollar is by far the most widely held currency at 60% based on 2020 data from the International Monetary Fund. Now, the U.S. dollar is also used in about 40% of global trade and nearly 80% of all global cross-border transactions. that surprise you? Most commodities and many other goods are traded in U.S. dollars, oil, copper, agricultural goods, just to name a few. That means investors need to hold dollars to trade in these goods and services, and they need to have a large liquid bond market to be able to invest in those dollars. Now, of course, having the world's reserve currency has afforded the U.S. some privileges. It means there's underlying demand for U.S. bonds from foreign central banks and other large investors looking for a safe market in which to invest. That allows the U.S. to borrow at lower rates than would otherwise be possible. Many years ago, former French President uh, Valéry Gessard d'Estaing used the phrase exorbitant privilege to describe the benefits accruing to the U.S. from having the world's reserve currency. But she says that's still the case today. Now, Shannon Brooks says, this means that most foreign governments hold a large supply of U.S. dollars. Why? Because it's considered the most stable currency. 
They keep it in reserve to ensure they can purchase vital international goods like food, industrial products, and crude oil. And this unique status afforded the U.S. in 1944 was primarily based on its performance during World War II, or, more clearly, U.S. military hegemony. We were the biggest, baddest, toughest guys on the block, and as such, it's reasoned we had the most respect or fear of all other countries. And until two weeks ago, we had for the most part retained that image. The image, though, is beginning to crack, says Dr. Brooks. Now, he says, what happens to a country's economy that's been at the top of the game for 75 years and then suddenly is no longer king of the hill? How does losing world reserve status affect a national economy and the standard of living of millions of people who live there? In fact, he goes on to ask, does the loss of such status change how our, ally, how our allies and how our enemies see us? He says, for the first time since World War II, U.S. allies are scratching their heads and they're starting to rethink relationships. The current Afghanistan debacle is changing the way the U.S. is being viewed around the world. U.S. allies are starting to wonder if the U.S. can be counted on, if they can continue to count on us as a protector of democracy and Western values. Shannon says if this perception changes, if our allies lose confidence in the U.S. military and our enemies no longer fear us, he says that the world reserve currency status will begin to erode and eventually crumble. And when that happens... The U.S. economy, that once robust U.S. economy, will fail and our lives will change forever. Okay, so that's bad news, right? I'm sure you felt the same little shiver go up your spine that I did. But it's also stuff that we have seen before. And this is where we're going to delve into the fourth turning methodology. And if you're being introduced to it for the first time, maybe this will change your, your point of view. Maybe it won't. But some exciting possibilities are ahead. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is one of our sponsors. In my opinion, there's never been a better time to, uh, to take another serious look at your food storage program. Now, for some people, this is going to be a little bit of a gut check because they may not have started their food storage program, had the best of intentions, thought, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. I'm waiting for things to get serious before I start thinking in terms of, you know, what I could be stocking away for, you know, a, a rainy day. Well, you know, the rainy day is, is upon us. And this isn't uh, the, the cure for everything, but it just gives you more options when you have a long-term supply. Whether when, when you have a survival kit, when you have a starter kit to, to build <clears throat> your food storage supply upon. There are a number of different packages you can choose from. Uh, you know, the... You, you can pick up stuff to, to last you a week, a grab-and-go bag, you know, including a roll-top dry bag. For those of you who have experienced flooding lately, maybe this is something that would make some sense. Please go to the website, lifesavingfood.com. Check it out. If you see something there that you can use, make the purchase. And when you do, use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, 
and they'll take 10% off your, your purchase price. So save you a little bit of money, give you a little bit of peace of mind. Hey, just doing our part. So I'm sharing this article from Dr. Shannon Brooks, one of the founders of Monticello College. And he is talking about the shrinking hegemon. That's the United States and its worldwide influence and how it's a fourth-turning reality. He talks about what happens if, uh, if the world loses faith, for instance, in the U.S. Uh, world reserve currency status, if the dollar is no longer seen as something that uh, represents a country that could be counted on, like mil- our military might can be counted on, if our enemies no longer fear us, then we may see the dollar fall from its preferred status as the world reserve currency. And he says when that happens, our economy is going to fall. It's going to fail. And our lives will change forever. Now, Shannon says, thinking men and women can clearly see that legislation that adds trillions of dollars to our national debt, an executive administration that's ordering new pandemic lockdowns, and a continued nationwide social breakdown can only serve to weaken us as a nation. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't out of the blue, right? This, this doesn't shock you. Oh, I never saw that coming. He says the utter failure of the U.S. withdrawal from from Afghanistan not only adds to our decline, but it will have decades of negative impact for the region and potential adverse effects on global events for the foreseeable future. Now, that's such a profound concept that he says, I think I need to restate it in greater detail. This change has the potential to reset the U.S. economy to second world conditions, economically, if not politically, in a short period of time. And that would mean, for the most part, the abolishment of the welfare state. That's going to immediately impact roughly half the American population. This, in turn, would lead to economic convulsions and civil unrest beyond anything experienced during the Great Depression. And he has a very interesting graph here. It's a survey showing how much money do you have saved in your savings account? 21% said, I have no money, or I don't have an account, a savings account. 25% no savings account. $50 uh, was about 28%. Just the minimum balance requirement was about 9%. Less than $1,000, that was roughly 13% of the respondents, Somewhere between $1,000 and $4,999, that's about 10% of the population. 5% has between $5,000 and $9,999. 14% of the population has $10,000 or more in saving. Now, this isn't to say, boy, if you can just stockpile that money, you're going to be safe. Here's what he's getting at. He says, this change would mean a sudden denial of nearly all personal credit, which means it would force all, almost all Americans to live within their means, which for the vast majority would be far below their current standard of living. Nearly 70% of Americans have no emergency fund. And Shannon Brooks says this kind of change will make the housing collapse of 2008 look like a Sunday picnic. Not 6 million American families displaced from their homes, rather tens of millions of defaulted mortgages and evictions. Now, there are, of course, other reasons for a decline in global dominance, internal social decay, a loss of national identity, greed, avarice, poor governance, natural disasters. And this has been the case for every other major historical power. 
So this is the good news. I know it's like, okay, this is this is feeling pretty heavy, but the thing you have to understand is this has happened before. This is part of a historical cycle. The events may not be, you know, word for word what happened, but this has happened within the Egyptian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Chinese dynasties, just to name a few. Now, Shannon says, it seems to be our turn. Now, those who are proactive to this coming change can actually benefit or at least not suffer from it. Those who rely on normalcy bias, though, will lose most of what they have and will struggle for decades. And this is where he gets into something that I know a lot of people really haven't thought about. Not because they're stupid, not because they're blind and, you know, they they just don't know better. They simply don't know what they don't know. Back in 2009, Shannon, along with Oliver DeMille, published the book Thomas Jefferson Education for Teens. This was a way to alert youth to what was coming and how to engage it. And particularly in Chapter 7, Success in the Next 20 Years, they offered some solutions to our current predicament. Now, the thing you have to understand is history runs in cycles. And there is a pattern of four seasons repeated over and over, each about 20 to 25 years long. Like the seasons of the year, one naturally follows another, and each one feels different and accomplishes a different purpose in the grand scheme of things. In their book, The Fourth Turning, authors William Strauss and Neil Howe call these four seasons turnings, like the phases of a cycle. And Shannon says, we strongly recommend you purchase and read this important book. Got a copy of it sitting right here on my desk in front of me, even as I, as I share this article with you. So the four seasons are, and this is, this is a great introduction to that fourth season methodology. First, there's a founding. This is where new institutions are built up to solve the great problems that culminated in the last cycle. So the United Nations, Social Security, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, NATO, and other organizations created right after the Great Depression and World War II. These were part of the founding of our, our last fourth turning. That was the first, that's the first turning, right? Lots of businesses flourished during that period. Think of what post-war America was, the baby boom, a lot of industry. Okay, you get the picture. Second comes the awakening. This is where youth grow up and challenge the old establishments, like the counterculture movement of the 60s at Woodstock, or the civil rights movement iconically led by Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. And also strong pushes for feminism, environmentalism, etc. The next season is... The third turning, this is an unraveling. Two or more big viewpoints in political parties fight for power and everything seems like it's coming apart. Economies boom. Now remember, the last unraveling took place between 1984 and 2001. The one before that in the roaring 20s. Finally, that brings us to the fourth turning, which is crisis. Big problems come. Actually, crisis seasons usually consist of three crises in a row, sometimes overlapped. First is the wake-up crisis that shakes everyone. That would be things like the Boston Tea Party, the election of Abraham Lincoln, or maybe the 1929 stock market crash, which started the Great Depression. In recent times, it appears that the 2008 housing crisis was likely the big catalyst for us. So that sets the stage a little bit for us. Founding, awakening, unraveling, crisis. Yo.
Yeah, we've definitely reached the crisis phase. Stick around. I'll share more of this article from Shannon Brooks with you just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we're taking a little bit of a deep dive into fourth-turning models of history. This, this is a cyclical approach to history. I'm sharing this from Dr. Shannon Brooks, who is one of the founders of Monticello College. They are one of my sponsors, just in case I need to get that disclosure out there. But this is a fascinating way to understand what's going on around us. And in the last segment, we spelled out how these four turnings are roughly like seasons. We have reached the crisis season. And the first crisis that comes is a wake-up crisis. Okay, we got that far. I think uh, most people who are paying attention looked at uh, what's the wake-up crisis that kind of sets things in motion. Sometimes this is called the catalyst. In past times, you know, the, the Boston Tea Party, the election of Abraham Lincoln, stuff like that, that was the catalyst. In our day, there were a lot who thought, myself included, maybe that uh, 9-11, right? We're coming up on the anniversary here in just a few days. 9-11 could have been the catalyst. Probably not, though. Because a bigger crisis followed just about seven years later, and that was the 2008 housing crisis. Now, second comes a major economic crisis, and then third, there's usually a major war or a pandemic or a mixture of these and other calamitous elements all at the same time. So think about the last several crisis seasons. They included the Revolutionary War and the subsequent Depression, the Civil War and Depression, the Great Depression and World War II. And Shannon says, okay, sounds bad, huh? But he says the bad news, which is also the biggest challenge in all this, is that when the crisis comes, almost everyone who's over 30 years of age is totally immersed in the rules, conventions, and patterns for success of the last phase. Now, this is super important. Because what worked for you during a first, second, or third turning does not work during a fourth turning. Shannon says this means that even though the even though the economic boom times and the long periods of peace are apparently over for a time, most people keep making choices that reflect what used to work, even though now all of the rules have changed. And what that means then is they make ineffective choices because they don't realize the rules have changed. For instance, parents educated in second or third seasons often think that kids should see education as job training. But that's a big mistake for a a fourth and first season. In these seasons, teens need to be prepared for entrepreneurship and initiative much more than job-specific skills. And there are many other differences between seasons. So here are some of the leading rules of success in each turning. In each season, success is found in, uh, for instance, in the second and third turnings, big institutions, professional careers, investment, credentials and resume, leisure and entertainment. Those are the places where you find success. But in a fourth turning and in a first turning, the dominant things will be family and community relations, entrepreneurial ability, initiative and leadership skills. Dr. Brooks doesn't mince words here. 
He says the way to fail in the fourth and first seasons is to try to live by the rules of the previous seasons. But he says the way to to succeed is to engage the new reality. Now, those who live or thrive in times of recession, depression, uh, slow growth economies, even war and other major crises, are the people who focus on home, community, and entrepreneurship. Can I just give you a quick aside on what that what that sounds like to me? I'm I'm going to liken this to something that that we're seeing right now, and that is the the push to keep the, the unvaccinated from participating in real society. But if you are a person who has been entrepreneurial, if you have created, I think that the term that Shannon and, and uh, Dr. DeMille used was uh, they, they talked about a mini factory. In other words, a home-based business. If you have taken the time to build a home-based business, a little cottage industry, you have some insulation from this attempt to shun people based on either vaccination status or political status or whatever whatever else comes up. I don't want to, you know, take it off into the weeds just on the vaccination issue. I'm just saying you are seeing a point in time where people are very actively saying those who are not like this should be excluded from society. You can't fly. You can't board a train or a bus. You can't shop. You cannot attend entertainment events. You can't socialize. If that's the case, then you better have an alternate means. You can't work, right? You can't work here unless you do what we say. Isn't that something? Now he says, as for real life, from now through the night, from the now through the twenty twenties, I'm sorry, the twenty thirties, the twenty forties, maybe even into the twenty fifties, it's time to get real. In other words, success now and for most of your life will be determined according to the rules of the first and fourth seasons. The new fourth-turning economy and society is here, and the realities with it. Now, these new realities need all your idealism and enthusiasm, but they can't and won't be the past, which too many adults are desperately trying to cling to or just beginning to mourn over. Those days are gone. Now, I understand that last sentence, those days are gone. That's, that hits some people like a ton of bricks. And I'm definitely one of those who, I, even though I've been aware of you know, the fourth turning model, even though I'm aware that things are changing, that the rules don't apply in a fourth turning that applied in, you know, a first or second or third turning. That's been very hard for me to, to embrace or to, to accept. But what we think of as normal, I think it's safe to say it's, it's not coming back. It's, it's not because you're bad. It's not because you didn't believe hard enough or vote right. It's because that is the nature of these historical cycles. So the key here is to focus on what works within the turning that you are undergoing right now and be willing to turn loose of what came before. See, there's a lot more to this. And again, the book itself explains there are generational archetypes. Uh, My mom is of a hero generation. I'm of a nomad generation, and we have very different views on on what matters and, and how life is supposed to be lived. For instance, my parents' generation, the idea was, look, you get a job and you stick with that job and you work until you can retire, get the gold watch, and then, you know, that's the way it's done. But it was all about stability, stability. You get the job, the dream job that uh, keeps you employed and safely getting a paycheck until you retire. 
Now, some people in my generation have been able to do that. But you know what? As a generation, as a nomadic generation, a lot of us have found it necessary to reinvent ourselves, sometimes multiple times. And that means that we have had to steer clear of some of the the things that worked before. You know, I, I, I lived through that phase where, you know, the biggest focus in my life was getting a steady paycheck and a job that I could count on. And that was kind of dumb to look for that in radio. But, hey, you know, I learned from it. <laughs> Nonetheless, those rules don't apply now. And I'm slow. I was slow to get on the bandwagon, but I have uh, since worked at, at being an entrepreneur, launching my own business, doing my own thing, standing on my own feet. It took a few tries for me. Okay, I'm, I'm one of the slow kids, but hey, eventually I'm getting there. Some people figured this out a long time ago. I can't recommend the book strongly enough, though. Get the book, The Fourth Turning, by William Strauss and Neil Howe. The subtitle is What Cycles of History Tell Us About America's Next Rendezvous with Destiny. And and just something that I want to add here to hopefully calm your nerves. Those other turnings that we've talked about, okay, the revolution and the founding period, that was a big deal. I mean, the fate of the nation hung in the balance. The Civil War and Reconstruction, same thing. The landscape looked very different on the other side of that crisis than it did going into it. Same thing with the Great Depression and World War II. The whole world aligned differently afterward. And when the storm that we are currently in right now abates, which it probably will sometime in the next 10 to 15 years, things are going to look very different on the other side. Now, you and I don't have a lot of direct control over that. But recognizing what's going on gives you options you would not otherwise have. And something that we do have control over, and this has real impact on what the outcome may be, is what kind of individuals are we? What kind of contribution are we making? I'm going to make a few people uncomfortable, but I feel like I need to say this, so I'm going to say it. A lot of folks feel what, what I could only refer to or, or liken to a calling from God, a very personal call to step up and do something or be something that they otherwise might not have considered. And they feel it strongly enough that they are willing to stick their necks out and, and really devote themselves to becoming something and someone who is, is there to make a difference in a way that only they can. Now, if that's making you uncomfortable, I'm going to suggest it's not just because uh, I suddenly morphed into a religious fanatic right there in, your, in front of your very ears. It's probably making you uncomfortable because you recognize there's some truth there. Maybe you've been trying to tamp that down and ignore it. But if you're feeling that sense of calling like there's something for you to do, I urge you in the gentlest possible terms, answer the call. You will not regret it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just got to take a quick time out here and thank one of our sponsors, and that would be the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located in St. George, Utah. And if you are one of the people moving to the Intermountain West and you're excited about the options you have of 
you know, uh, finding a new home here in, among a more freedom-minded people. This is particularly for those who are fleeing some of the coastal areas where, you know, the lockdowns have been ridiculous. Um, first of all, congratulations. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're here. Now, finding a home and being able to uh, get that home, that's challenging. It's the craziest real estate market most of us have ever seen. When you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away right now. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in because they specialize in getting you the loan that you need, VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. They have the clout and the stability to help you get that loan without delay. Now, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call 435-703-4522 or they're located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. All right, that's it. I am sharing this article from Dr. Shannon Brooks from MonticelloCollege.org. Our shrinking hegemon, a fourth-turning reality. I hope it doesn't sound too cult-like to say you really should read this book, The Fourth Turning, but it had such a profound effect on how I tend to see what's happening, current events as well as historical events, because once the pattern has been pointed out, once you recognize those cycles of history and some of the generational archetypes that go along with it, the attitudes that come along, you start to realize this is not something new. This, this is our turn to pass through a gate in history that others before us have passed through. And frankly, if you live uh, basically to the age of a tree, if you live, you know, 80 to 120 years, you're very likely going to experience this. So here we go. And for a lot of people, they sense the change. They don't understand why it's happening. They don't understand what they can do. But if you take away nothing else from from me sharing this with you, the thing to take away is that the rules that worked in those previous turnings or seasons, if you will, because they're very much like the seasons of the calendar, what worked before will not work. So second and third turning rules don't apply in a fourth turning or in a first turning. You got to be adaptable. And for a lot of people, that's hard. I'm, I'm, not somebody who has always done well with change. I've fought it tooth and nail. You've got to learn to roll with the punches. You've got to learn to reinvent yourself. I've been given this advice many times. Now I'm passing it on to you. The difference is, from the time I first heard that advice to this moment, I've actually had a chance to put this into practice. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, it, this is true. This is legit. But the important thing is it gives you options. So, taking the long view, Shannon Brooks says another key of leadership is to focus on what's next, not dwelling on the past or even the challenges of now. You've heard me talk about maybe it's time to focus on building what comes next. This is where I get that thinking. Overcoming current challenges, Shannon says, is important but the focus should be on what's ahead. He says, because of cycles and seasons, some of the most important classics to study as a teen, now this was written for a teen audience, uh, at least this excerpt that he's sharing from from the book, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Education for Teens. He says, some of the most important classics to study as a teen are those written during fourth and first seasons by authors who lived through them. 
One of the best of these, with a focus on family and entrepreneurship, is a book called Our Home by C.E. Sargent. Sargent lived in the fourth turning of the Civil War and built his career and family in the first turning that followed. So here are a few of the rules for financial success, family leadership, and overall happiness in fourth and first seasons, as thought by C.E. Sargent. Number one, C.E. Sargent said, embrace the new and the now. Number two, articulate and write down your personal rules for life and live them. I've got a good friend. Tyler, here's a shout out to you. When Tyler and I first met, one of the things he shared with me was his personal rules for life. And this was not some superficial, you know, eat till you're hungry, sleep till you're, or what is it, eat till you're tired, sleep till you're hungry. No, he had put serious thought into it. In fact, as I read through his rules of life, I recognized, man, this guy is a kindred spirit. He's seriously thought about who he is and what his life is about. And I I can't recommend this enough. I mean, this may sound like uh, your daily affirmation is to write your rules of life and then read them and stay on target with them. But it it does work. So take C.E. Sargent's advice. Articulate and write down what you believe, what you stand for, and live up to those rules. Number three, make meaning a central focus of your learning conversations, and thinking. Now, he also says, be grateful and look for the silver lining. This is something that I know a lot of people right now are struggling with depression. And it's because of the various tensions, the lockdowns, the opportunities that have been denied or have have been squandered. But if you want to be grateful, it will help to carry you through those times of difficulty. Look for the silver lining. What do you have to be thankful for? You know, uh, Shannon Brooks talks about uh, reading books that were written, you know, by people who lived through fourth turnings. Corey Tenboom, The Hiding Place. I mean, she she can teach you a lot about how to live through a fourth turning and some of the, the crisis that comes with it. Well, what's her claim to fame? Well, she and her uh, sister, Bessie, were put into a concentration camp in World War II. But she found gratitude. Their barracks were so infested with lice, the German guards didn't dare come in there. And because of that, Corey was able to keep a Bible that she had smuggled into the camp secret from the guards. It wasn't confiscated. They had a source of strength to turn to, even though they had to live among, you know, pestilence. (laughs) Something to think about. Number four, again, this is from C.E. Sargent. Make marriage the central focus of your life. Number five, embrace entrepreneurship, and which he says is the only path to stability in uncertain times. Find a way to create value for other people. Number six, develop creativity and inventiveness. Figure things out. Number seven, dig deep and find your inner resiliency. Stay optimistic and enthusiastic. And by the way, this isn't just putting on a Pollyanna, everything's great, you know, kind of attitude. The benefit of this may not accrue so much to you, but the people around you who see that you are steady in the midst of turmoil, they're going to draw strength from that. We need people who can be steady. Now, if if you want to know more about this, you can read the entire seventh chapter of A Thomas Jefferson Education for Teens. And finally, Shannon asked you to encourage what uh, he calls the new economy 
Now, I've been to his campus and had a chance to see this firsthand with my own eyes. At Monticello College, he is training students to see the world differently and to consider the viability and value of getting a world-class library education. This is something you and I can do, by the way, in, in our spare time, if we are willing to introduce our minds to the books and the things that will actually give us that education. We have to go after it ourselves. Part of that new economy is building a home without a mortgage. Now, this isn't going to be the big luxury at the end of the street. You know, this isn't going to be the big house that everybody brags about. But it's functional living space. Not quite a tiny home, but if you can build a home without a mortgage, you're in a secure place. Learning to live with off-grid energy, be that wind or solar, growing all of one's food, starting your own business. This is things that he, these are things he discusses in detail in his latest book, American, Killing the American Dream. Shannon says, there is no doubt that things are changing. All students of history know that society tends to be fluid, not fixed and rigid. Those who can't change with the times are doomed to suffer the consequences. So he says, we get past the point of speculation. The writing is on the wall. The proof is in the pudding. He says, if you've made it to this closing paragraph... It's likely we share this view. So his question then is, are you prepared? Have you already implemented these kinds of changes in your life? And if your answer is yes, then he says, thank God for your foresight. Now go and help others. But if your answer is no, then the question he has for you is, what in the world are you waiting for? Take heart. Okay, we've we've seen our way as a as a society as a people. We've seen our way through tough things before. It's our turn to live through interesting times. There's great opportunity. There's a great sense of purpose for those who are willing to embrace it. Consider being one of those people. This is the Brian Hyde Show.